0: And look, the Bible's teachings don't really give us any sort of wiggle room about who we are and are not supposed to be serving in these times. In fact, Jesus uses the parable of the Samaritan to unpack how we're supposed to love those who we might see ourselves even as enemies with. How well we love one another is a direct indication of how well we know Christ and what he's done for us. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week, we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Hey, thank you, James, and welcome to episode 13. Of the Heath and Pursuit podcast. I am Heath Hollinsby and I will be the guide for the next half an hour or so. We don't have a special guest on this podcast because this is a special pandemic COVID 19 episode. And um, I thought it would be kind of helpful to chat through what's going on around the world right now. Uh, As you know, COVID 19 is rapidly spreading across planet Earth as I write these very words. Where I'm at here in Tacoma, people are going crazy. Stockpiling face masks, toilet paper, bottled water, soap, hand sanitizer. Uh, it's it's crazy. I was at Costco this morning getting a like a pitcher that heats up water for tea here at the house. And there's a 45-minute wait as they were letting certain people go in at certain times. And there's a huge list outside of stuff that they're out of stock on. And I don't know. It's just this is a weird time to be alive. I know a lot of people are under mandatory... Uh, quarantines or stay-at-home orders, um, and so I'm I'm all for that. Do what you need to do to stay safe and be healthy out there. Um, but I'm just kind of curious. As I was writing this episode, I'm looking at how the focus of many of these like hoarding efforts naturally is a protection of self, and it's a protection uh, for others that we stop spreading this potential. Chaos that this virus could ensue on us. But in the midst of all this worry, I want to take a couple minutes and talk about how Christians throughout history have dealt with plagues in the past. Because people that are following Jesus in today's day and age, the 21st century, might actually benefit from taking a page from our Christian history as we look at how to navigate this crazy crisis known as the coronavirus. And that is, how do we get through this pandemic? with being alert and being cautious, but also not throwing in the towel when it comes to not fearing and not being anxious and to giving our lives for the other, as Jesus has called us to. Now, I want to start off at the beginning and say, look, I am not a medical expert, and chances are neither are you. So I'm not going to be speaking as an authoritative voice on the subject, and I really don't. That's not my MO. That's not really how I run these podcasts. But more than anything, I just kind of want to show you throughout history how Christians have responded to pandemic and crises with the hopes that it might both encourage you in how to live through this and also maybe make you a good news person in your community. So I'm not going to address questions like whether or not stockpiling toilet paper shows generosity of where you believe your provision comes from or whether it's a smart move to be a provider of your family. Those are conversations that I hope that you have with your spouse or with your group of friends or your local community. But I also want to say for those people that are so fear and anxiety driven right now to blurt out answers, I'm just saying, hear me out. I've got access to the same sort of information you do. I'm probably watching news the same amount as you do. I vary between all the networks and I read really crazy websites that have totally different thoughts in the hope to get a a concept over a topic that I think is helpful to presenting to people. And so if you're really quick to go like, well, Heath, you you obviously didn't see this, this line of research or you didn't see this article or you didn't hear this or my friend's grandma had this, I get it. It's cool. Like, you know, have those opinions, have those thoughts. We're just trying to do the best we can here. And so don't come at me with a posture of anxiety and frustration and panic and, losing your mind, but let's keep the posture of being a learner through this and that we might grow into being better people and people that care about each other even more. Okay, so coronavirus facts. I'm going to start with this. Um, Coronaviruses are a type of a virus, and there are many kinds, and some cause disease and others don't. The one we're talking about specifically is a newly identified type that's caused a recent outbreak of respiratory illness, and this is called COVID-19. Coronaviruses are common in different animals, and occasionally an animal coronavirus can infect humans. And there are many different types of coronaviruses, and some of them cause colds, and others cause mild respiratory, like nose or lung or throat illnesses. Other coronaviruses cause more serious diseases, including SARS, which was the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or if you remember MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, And coronaviruses are actually named because of their appearance, because under the microscope, the viruses actually look like they're covered with these pointed structures that look almost like a corona or a crown. So crown virus, coronavirus, that's where we're pulling the name from. As I am recording this episode, there are 853,799 coronavirus cases with 42,000 deaths, 176,906 recovered. Okay, now we're going to divide those up into closed cases and active cases, and then we're going to re-crunch these numbers at the end of the episode and just see in the 30 minutes together how things are accelerating. So out of the closed cases, there are 176,906 closed cases that people have recovered from or been discharged from the hospital with coronavirus from. That's 81%. There have been 42,000 deaths exactly, which is 19% of people who have had coronavirus put to their name. There are 634,893 currently infected patients that are active cases. 95% of them are in mild condition, which is 602,619 people. And there's 5% in serious or critical cases right now, critical condition, which is 32,274 cases. As we talk about predictions, Harvard infectious disease epidemiologist Mark Lipstitch has a model that put a stop to strict social distancing without something like a vaccine or a cure coming along. And what the predictions were saying that it was allowing infections to climb right back up to their peak of about two critical cases per 1,000 people, which could be about 660,000 Americans getting seriously ill or dying from COVID-19 and even with the strictest lockdown type measures lasting from april through july his team model is finding that this there's a surge of this disease that's going to hit us again in fall of 2020 now it's important to remember that the whole point of social distancing is twofold the first it's supposed to slow the epidemic and what that does is it keeps the number of sick people at any one time below the maximum that the healthcare system in america can handle The other thing that it does is it stalls the virus spread so that scientists have a bit more time to work on the treatments. If Lipstitch's team is right, the characteristics of COVID-19 might require a critical flux between strict social distancing, which is currently in place, and viral resurgence and on until maybe even 2022. Lipstitch says that if everything actually goes right with massive testing, quarantines of the ill aggressive social distancing, things like that. It'll be possible to keep numbers down and maybe shorten the timeline of the virus, but we're not getting rid of it anytime soon. But there is good news, and the good news in all of this is that pandemics are not uncommon to human population. In fact, this episode we're going to go back to the time of Jesus and talk about different pandemics that have hit the human population since then. And we are not alone in 2020 dealing with COVID-19. The Black Plague, as you might know, is the most devastating pandemic that has ever been recorded in human history, and that resulted in about 200 million people dying in Europe in just four years, between 1347 and 1351. The Black Plague is actually where they first came up with the concept of quarantining people as a way to stop disease, because people didn't really know in the 1300s, obviously. There wasn't really any scientific understanding of what caused something to be contagious. All they knew is it had something to do with being in proximity to one another. And so they had some foreign-thinking officials and doctors and government people in Italy, and they took a Venetian-controlled port city of Ragusa, and they decided to keep the newly-arriving sailors in that location in complete isolation until they could prove that they weren't sick. That was about an eight-day quarantine. And the most popular theory about how the plague ended is through the implementation of these quarantines. So while some are skeptical that quarantines aren't going to actually fix things, we should be grateful because in the case of the Black Plague, they pin the success of that plague being depleted on earth due to quarantine measures in Italy. Medieval people believe that the Black Death or the Black Plague came from God, and so A lot of religious people were trying to solve the issue with prayers and different rituals and bead counting and praying to Mother Mary. And while this is informed by a worldview in which they were living, it's a response that we see in a lot of Christians today. I know there's massive denominations, even in America, that are trying to speak through televisions, healing, they're saying we just need to pray harder, and that is just not a healthy way to view pandemics, because God often calls his people to action not just sitting in an office or on a couch praying for the world, but actually getting their hands dirty and helping fix and restore that, which is broken on planet Earth. Smallpox was an endemic that was familiar to the people of Europe and Arabia and Asia for centuries. And it was a persistent plague in that it killed three out of ten people that it infected, and it left the rest of them with these pockmarked scars. I had chicken pox when I was a kid, and I still got scars on my forehead because of it. Now, the indigenous people of Mexico and the United States had really no natural immunity to smallpox. And because of that, the virus cut them down by the tens of millions, and it was not a fun time to be alive. Centuries after smallpox ravished the world, it was announced that it became the first virus epidemic to be ended by a vaccine, which is great. And this came primarily from the work of a British doctor in the 18th century named Edward Jenner, who discovered that milkmaids that were infected with a milder virus called cowpox seemed really immune to smallpox. And what Jennifer did was he famously inoculated, much to the dismay of this person's mother, his nine-year-old gardener's son with cowpox, and then exposed him to the smallpox virus. And there was no bad effects from it. He didn't catch it. So though it took two more centuries for the World Health Organization to announce that smallpox had been completely eradicated from the face of the earth, that did happen in 1980, and people have been rejoicing ever since. Another one that was really crazy was cholera. Again, this was in England, and this killed tens of thousands of people back in the early to mid-19th century. There was a prevailing theory of the day that had people thinking that cholera was being spread by bad air, known as miasma, I think is how they pronounced it. Fortunately, there was a doctor in England named John Snow who thought this cannot be right, and he suspected that this disease, that was pretty mysterious at the time, was killing its victims within days of its first symptoms he thought it was coming from london's drinking water supply and so in the middle 1800s it's important to remember that people didn't have toilets like we have today or running water to do cooking and to do laundry and that sort of stuff in fact they even used town wells and communal pumps to get the water that they actually had so that they could do their cooking and their washing and their drinking and all that sort of stuff and another thing they didn't have was proper septic systems because most homes and businesses didn't have them because um, they were just too costly and that technology wasn't advanced yet. And so they would dump their untreated sewage and waste directly into the River Thames or into these open pits in the cities called cesspools. Now, this is where it gets dark because water companies would bottle water from the Thames and then they'd take it to the pubs and the breweries and other businesses and that's how they got fresh water to the community. What Dr. Snow believed was that this water that was being dumped into the river or even into the cesspools in local towns was contaminating the water supplies, and that's where this crazy rapid spread of disease was coming from. In 1854, in August, there was a suburb of London called Soho, which was where Dr. Snow himself lived, and it was hit really hard by a terrible outbreak of cholera. He thought it was time to get busy, and he went to work proving his theory that it was the water and not the air that was the cause of the outbreak. After doing research, he took this research to the town officials in September 7th of 1854 and convinced them that they need to take the handle off the city, the pump to the well, making it impossible for residents to draw water. While the officials were really reluctant to believe him, they actually did As a trial, take this handle off, and they found that cholera almost immediately trickled to a stop. It's important to remember, though, that cholera is still an issue to third-world countries, and many poverty-stricken countries still don't have access to clean water. And researchers are still estimating that every year there's between 1.3 million and 4 million cases of cholera, with up to 143,000 deaths happening worldwide. So this is still a global pandemic, and let's not let our privilege ignore that because we don't have to deal with that in America in 2020. I want to go back to even earlier than the plague, and I want to go back to like the first 100-200 years of early Christianity with the pandemics happening then. A lot of this research has come from a book by Rodney Stark called The Triumph of Christianity, and then there's another book that I read by Gary Ferngren called Medicine and Healthcare in Early Christianity that are two sources of really radical information regarding how early Christians took on medicine and healthcare. And this historian, and he's also a sociologist, Rodney Clark, provided a really powerful argument that one of the real principal reasons that Christianity grew during the 1st and 4th centuries, was because of the mercy that Christians showed to people who were physically suffering, and in particular, how Christians showed mercy during the two plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire. One of these was in about the year 165, and then one was about about 100 years later. So, in the year 165 AD, during the reign of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, there was a devastating epidemic that swept through the Roman Empire. And they don't 100% know what caused this, but they do think it was smallpox initially. And whatever it was, it was really, really lethal. In fact, during the 15-year duration of this epidemic, almost a quarter to a third of the population died of it. At the height of the epidemic, mortality was so severe in most of the cities that the emperor, who actually ended up dying of smallpox, wrote in his, his articles about caravans and carts of wagons pulling dead bodies out of the city, hauling out the dead from the cities. And something that was really fascinating was that there was a famous physician at the time called Galen, I guess famous enough to go just by one word, and he took off for Rome for his country estate where he stayed until the danger subsided. And for those who couldn't flee, the typical response was try to avoid any contact with the afflicted since it was understood that this disease was massively contagious. But when the first symptom appeared, victims were often thrown into the streets where the dead and the dying lay in piles, and they were just expected to die along with them. So a really dark time in the Roman Empire, and then about a century later came another huge plague, and one that the Greco-Roman world just freaked out on because all sides were dying. Neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, and no one knew how to treat the sick, and most people weren't even trying. In a pastoral letter written during this epidemic... Bishop Dionysius wrote that at the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest beloved, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. And this is in polar contrast to how Christians were typically reacting during this plague. Because he was saying, as for Christians, Christians met the obligation to actually care for the sick rather than to desert them. And because of that, they saved massive numbers of lives of people who were going to get sick, people that were dying. Christians stepped in and took that on their own. William McNeil wrote in his book, Plagues and Peoples, that under the circumstances that were taking place in this era, even quite elementary nursing was able to greatly reduce mortality, simple provision of food and water, for instance, would allow people who were temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of miserably perishing. He also goes on to say that it is really possible that Christians who were serving as nurses would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds during these plagues. The fact that while most pagans were running to the hills to, to escape the plague the most stricken Christians survived, didn't go unnoticed. They were actually gaining immense credibility to the Christian faith, being called miracle workers. And in fact, the miracles often included pagan neighbors and relatives. And I'm sure that this produced some really strange conversations, especially by those who were putting their lives onto the line to help those who were sick with these various plagues be restored to proper health. Historians have suggested that these plagues actually led to the spread of Christianity because as Christians were taking care of the sick and the afflicted, what they were doing was offering a model of spirituality that showed that plagues were not the work of an angry god or angry gods, but the product of a broken creation in revolt against a god who was loving On Easter Sunday in 260 AD, uh, Bishop Dionysius of Corinth, who we've talked about already, he raved about the efforts of the Christians, many of whom had died and perished while caring for others. He reported, in fact, that many of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And the fascinating thing is that this Christ likeness that was obviously evident during this time this taking death in order to give life stood in really stark contrast to those who were outside of the church. And it's apparent as Dionysius continues, and he says, "...but with the heathen everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which yet, with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape." The early Christians' dedication to caring and loving their neighbors as themselves during these times of plague and sickness showed the integrity of their unique message of love and worth of others, and it was these Christ-like actions that had great impact, both socially and economically, that attracted outsiders to the faith. It was this selfless kind of love that created a massive explosion of Gentile Christian congregations to arise around the The world. Okay, so we're going to talk about how Christians have responded throughout history. And obviously, Jesus is the source of all this, and so Jesus' ministry exhibited a very compassionate view of sickness and poverty and suffering. He responded to the sick with humane acts that were intended to alleviate their suffering and provide them a sense of self-worth and revealing of the Imago day that they were created, the image of God that they bore. He called his followers not to judge, but to replicate his concern and actions of sympathy towards others. Back in the days of Jesus, leprosy was the HIV or, or the AIDS of that day, and the lepers were social outcasts. They were often ignored and shunned and isolated and kicked out to die alone, But Jesus' example was clear. It was recorded in the Bible that he went around and was touching the afflicted with his hands. He was praying for them. He was sharing meals with them. And throughout the Gospels, we can see Jesus over and over and over more concerned with reflecting the love of God than with dissecting illness or passing blame or judgment to these individuals. Early records that were dating to less than even 200 years after Jesus walked the earth showed that Christians, at the risk of their own lives, were following in his footsteps as they took care of the dying and the sick during extreme pandemic and epidemic sort of conditions. Followers of Jesus really took seriously his words when he said in John 13, "...a new command I give you, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another." And it was during each pandemic that government officials and the wealthy fled the cities for the countryside to escape contact with those who were infected. They didn't want anything to do with them. They wanted to self-preserve. Instead, the Christian community remained behind and they transformed themselves into a great force of caretakers who both physically put their life on the line for the other and also sat with them. And kindness, and in love, and giving worth to somebody as they passed from this life to the next. And this wasn't new, because Christians had done the same thing since Christ uh, roamed the planet. Christians stayed in afflicted cities when pagan leaders, including physicians, bolted off to wherever they went to escape the chaos. Candida Moss, who is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Notre Dame, says, uh, That an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity really is worth dying for. Okay, Black Plague this period of the Black Plague, was a really troubling one for members of the religious community. But what it also did was it provided the institutional church an avenue to be shaken from a faith perspective down to its core. You see, the public wanted an explanation for the plague that was happening around them. And there was a sense it might be punishment for sin, but there seemed to be no real rhyme or reason to why it was happening. And communities were the perfect breeding ground for the plague, much like we're seeing with COVID-19 right now. In fact, there were whole monasteries and abbeys that were being wiped out and shut down. And it seemed during this time that the church had no answers. But what this did not do was stop large amounts of priests from doing everything that they could to give their parishioners and their members some sort of spiritual refuge as they looked at the face of death straight on. In The Great Mortality, John Kelly says that the mortality for priests during the Black Plague was 42 to 45%, which is about 15% higher than the overall mortality rates that were suitable for the general population. And this death rate has been hotly debated for years, but the general consensus seems that the mortality rate during Black Plague was about 30%. The clergy who cared for the sick were dying at a high rate, and there's reasons for that. There was sheer exhaustion they were tired. They were serving non-stop. There was repeated exposure moving from home to home all day and all night to visit those who were dying, and that made priests very vulnerable. And because there were so many sick, there were few priests that remained as the disease progressed. In fact, Clement VI declared that the dying could make their confession to anyone present, even to a woman, and it would still lead to salvation. This was a big deal for the church because... Typically, up to that point, clergy were the only ones that were allowed to perform last rites, but there was just none of them left. They had all put their life on the line, contracted the plague, the uh, the rates were dropping of who they were, and so we got to declare that you can confess to anyone and it's going to work because our hands are tied. We've got nobody left. Well, many fled, not the priests, but many, many government authorities left, and no one was shocked because that's what the pagan authorities had always done. Now, something interesting is Martin Luther with the plague, because a couple hundred years after the Black Plague hit, Martin Luther was around in 1527 when a case of the bubonic plague was found in Wittenberg, which was the small town where Luther was based. And he had some interesting thoughts regarding what it was like to stay behind, because when many were fleeing, Luther and his wife, Katharina, stuck around to care for the sick, now, his wife was pregnant at the time, but they were citing Matthew twenty-five forty-one through 46 as their guide. And he said, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. Luther spoke of circumstances where fleeing was permitted and even conscience of our propensity towards self-righteousness, he warned Christians not to judge one another for different decisions, but in writing of his own commitment, he remarked, We are here alone with the deacons, but Christ is present too, that we may not be alone. And he will triumph in us over that old serpent, murderer and author of sin. However much he may bruise Christ's heel, pray for us, and farewell. That was dated August 19th, 1527. The refusal to leave Wittenberg actually cost the life of his daughter, Elizabeth. This is a tension point in my research where I just, I can't figure out what to do with this because I go, you're not being a provider, but you're feeling called to heed the words of Jesus and there's a disconnect. Out of it, there was a tract that was produced called Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague, where Luther provides a very clear articulation of the Christian epidemic response in his mind. And he said, we die at our posts Because Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties, it turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. So, throughout history, there was a desire to follow Jesus where he might lead, but it was also fueled by a belief that every human being was made in the image of God. You see, even in the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, Jesus. His demand was to go and show mercy on people, strangers and enemies. And that significantly played into the way that the early church entered the chaos of pandemics that they were facing. And this to me stands in stark contrast to a hoarding toilet paper rolls and hand sanitizer spirit that many Christians, even myself, absorb today. The Christian response to plagues always starts with some of Jesus's most famous teachings like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or to even love your neighbors yourself, or greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And to put it simply, the ethic of Christians in a time of plagues and pandemics needs to consider that our very own lives must always be regarded as less important than that of our neighbor. And during plague periods, Christians have constantly made a name for themselves. To people that are acquainted And familiar with germ theory uh, and disease theory, this all does sound a bit foolish, right? We could blame this to a lack of education in the early church or a lack of ignorance or stubbornness by Martin Luther. Like caring for the sick sounds really nice and it's a worthwhile pursuit, but it's as likely to infect others as to save lives. And in a situation like this, something that we need to consider is. Are normal people really the ones that should be assuming a burden of care, or should that be left to hospitals and doctors who are provided with the right resources? Because there's also an element of the Christian faith that talks about our bodies being gifts from God, or our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit, or not self-harming, or suicide, or even Luther, as he says in his essay on the topic, we must not tempt God, which uh, he means to suggest that we might not even endanger others through our own negligence or recklessness. Luther's essay, in fact, encourages believers to obey quarantine orders and to fumigate their houses and to take precautions to avoid spreading sickness. Now, the Christian motive for hygiene and sanitation doesn't arise in self-preservation, but in an ethic of service to our neighbors, even. We want to and we desire to care for the sick and the afflicted, which first and foremost means not infecting those who are not sick and afflicted. It's protecting the healthy. Even early Christians created the first hospitals in Europe as hygienic places to provide care during times of the plague with the understanding that negligence to spread disease was murder, in fact. If you're taking—Luther would argue that if you're taking healthy people and exposing them to sick people and the plague is moving on or sickness is moving on and you're a carrier of that, that you should be guilty of murder as you help spread that disease, which is a, a bit crazy. Something that, that as we close up here, we need to consider is what do Christians do in this time? And I think with every mean possible, practice over-the-top hygiene, both for your sake and for the sake of everyone else. Wash your hands, cough into your arm, elbow bump, don't shake hands, stay away from public meetings Try to avoid people as little as possible physically. Follow the local health recommendations that are provided by authorities who are doing a lot of research to try to get this out there. But if one of your brothers or sisters or even your non-Christian neighbors contracts the disease and needs you to serve them, or even maybe the healthcare systems get overwhelmed and bombarded and barraged and need extra volunteers, maybe consider serving them simply because you are a Christian. And, and I want to reiterate here that by all means, let's not be stupid or ignorant when it comes to to the topic at hand. COVID-19 is a really, really dangerous disease. It's a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's shutting governments down. It's shutting jobs down. It's shutting people's lives down. It's disrupting economics. I mean, this is a huge deal. But follow the CDC recommendations. Follow the World Health Organization recommendations. Follow your local authorities. But continue to show mercy and serve others the way that Jesus taught us to. This is what Christians have done throughout the history of the church in the midst of death and suffering and dispersion. And it's one of the main reasons that Christianity flourished during the first four centuries of its existence. It's also important to remember that we are called to care for one another And that the gospel calls us to never relationally distance from one another. So while we can social distance, to relationally distance is a whole nother thing. And so social distancing is the top news right now of the day, and it should be. But if we end up far apart from one another, we're going to be a lot worse off, not better. And so social distance, but this is a great opportunity for us to check in on our neighbors, for us to FaceTime in the evenings, to build bridges, when the virus wants to create a division between people. And I don't think that the teachings of Jesus give us any sort of room to wiggle around who we're supposed to serve. In fact, in one of his most famous parables, he talks about the Good Samaritan loving those who might be seen even as a cultural enemy. In essence, how well we are able to love one another is a direct indication of how well we love and know Christ and what he's done for us. And its most basic level, this means that we are going to care for others in our time of need. And in a world where everything is is two-sided and politicized, the gospel gives us the command to serve the hurting and to serve one another and to love one another. And if your neighbor has contracted COVID-19 and needs your help getting some sort of medical attention, help them. Because we Christians show who God is and what he's like and how he's loved us in the way that we love one another. The Good Samaritan went to great lengths to put their life on the line at great cost to serve the half-dead person that was on the side of the road. And this is a perfect example of what Jesus is like, who gave his life for us. And greater love has no man than this. Like, we get to overcome chaos and panic and fear and anxiety by serving and loving and remembering ultimately that life is a vapor, and it's a gift, and that we have hope of the age to come, and not in everything that is seemingly falling apart around us. As I told you at the beginning of the podcast, I was going to read this quotes uh, as far as where we've come. Currently, there are 854,039 coronavirus cases, 42,014 deaths, so 14 deaths up since I started this episode. With 176,906 recovered, that is a difference of 240 viruses at this point, and uh, it's going to continue. Let's not lose hope. And I just thought it would be kind of cool to end this podcast by reading the Beatitudes, because they've been rocking my world lately. I haven't spent too much time reading the Bible these days, but Matthew 5, uh, Beatitudes, have really been helpful. And so I'm going to read those to us as we close. Blessed are the poor in spirit... Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say everything evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward. And my encouragement to us is let us not be driven by fear, no matter what transpires in the next day or hour or week ahead, but may we be guided by something greater who has declared a blessing upon those who show mercy. We're going to get through this. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollinsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.